another exciting episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Today, we're talking all about the legs. So we're going to start by reviewing the leg anatomy. Then we're going to review leg exercises and how to program them effectively. I have a bachelor's degree in exercise science. I'm in school to become a doctor of physical therapy. I'm a certified personal trainer who started a business at the age of 21. I've trained dozens and dozens of clients and helped hundreds of people. I've read dozens and dozens of books all about health, fitness, training, and nutrition. And I'm putting all of that knowledge and experience together to bring you this podcast. The Brawn Body Podcast is your new one-stop shop for everything you need to know about health, fitness, nutrition, and more. So the legs have a very complicated set of anatomy because we've got the hip, we've got the knee, we've got the ankle. We have all kinds of stuff going on with the legs. So we're going to kind of break it down here one by one. So last week we talked extensively about the glutes and they do act at the hip. So technically you can consider them part of the legs and you'll see some overlap between glute exercises and leg exercises when we get into those in more detail. Um, So basically starting off here, we're going to start with the quadriceps. So we're starting with what's in front. So the quadriceps are a group of four muscles. So you're looking at the vastus medialis, which is towards the middle of your uh, leg, the lateralis, which is towards the side, the intermedius, which is deep in the leg below the other three muscles, and the fourth one is the rectus femoris or rectus femoris. So breaking these down, vastus medialis, as I said, is the middle muscle in your quads, and that is the muscle that bodybuilders are always chasing to get that teardrop look to the quads. The lateralis is to the outside, as I said, intermedius sits below the rectus femoris and it's flat. So in that sense, it's kind of comparable to the brachialis in the upper arm. The rectus femoris crosses the hip and the knee joint. So because of that, it also acts at the hip. So it anteriorly tilts the pelvis and flexes the hip. All four collectively are powerful extensors of the knee. So they extend your knee as in standing up or straightening your leg from a bent position. And as far as attachment, they all attach into the common quadriceps tendon. Now, another important feature that we often overlook about the quads is patellar tracking. So your patella is your kneecap or that bone in that area. And when you move your knee, your patella or kneecap should move a certain way. And if you have imbalances in these muscles, you're going to have issues with that tracking. And as a result, you might need to see a physical therapist or someone else who's qualified to address that imbalance to help you out. The four of these are innervated by the femoral nerve. I don't usually get into nerve distribution, but I'm mentioning that because it's at the L2 to L4 So that's the level of the spine that the nerve comes from, uh, L2 to L4, so lower back area. The reason I'm mentioning that is different times people have nerve pain in that area from different lower back disorders or issues, 
and this is how the pain can radiate or where it will affect. So we've talked about what's in front with the quads. Now let's talk about what's behind with the hamstrings. So the hamstrings are collectively three to four-ish muscle groups. Muscles, I'm sorry. So we have the semitendinosus, the semimembranosus, and the long head of the biceps femoris. Those three are considered the hamstrings. The reason why is they all share a common attachment at the ischial tuberosity, so in your butt, and then they go across the knee. The biceps femoris short head would be considered the fourth hamstring muscle. However, they don't consider it collectively part of the hamstrings. At least the book I'm referencing does not because it does not cross the hip joint. So again, semi-T, semi-M, biceps femoris long head, all across the hip, biceps femoris short head does not. So the three semi-T, semi-M, and biceps femoris long head, all three act to extend the hip and posteriorly tilt the pelvis. So they would do the same thing as the glutes in that regard. However, those three plus the biceps femoris short head, all four of them cross the knee, so they flex the knee. So the quads extend the knee and straighten the leg. The hamstrings flex the knee, so they bend it or they pull your heel back towards your butt. And they also rotate your knee. So believe it or not, your knee rotates. So if you're sitting down listening to this podcast, pick one leg up and then rotate your knee side to side. Take your foot and move it in, move it out, move it side to side. You'll actually see and feel that your knee rotates a little bit to the sides. The hamstrings, I'm going to talk about uh, extensively in the exercise section, are crucial for injury prevention, especially with things like ACL tears. Another muscle group that's also important for injury prevention, and again, I'll get into this a little bit later, is the adductors. So collectively, we have the adductor magnus, adductor longus, adductor brevis, and the gracilis. So the magnus, of course, would be the biggest of them all. And this is so big that it also acts kind of like a hamstring. The four of these muscles, though, in general act to pull the hip inwards, so adduct the hip, and they internally rotate the hip. So um, they would, the glutes externally rotate the hip, these internally rotate. So going back to what we talked about with glute max last week, that ballet type position where you extend and externally rotate your hip, where your leg, your foot is behind you, and the toe is pointing out. With these, the adductor is going to pull it in and the leg in, and the toes will be facing in as well. So just going from that abducted or abducted and externally rotated position into an adducted and internally rotated position. So again, these are often missed in their training uh, programs because most people think, what do I use these for? And you don't see people like bodybuilders going after these for aesthetics too much. Uh, So again, strengthening them and working them is crucial for injury prevention. 
So we've gone over the front, the back, and one of the sides. There's two muscles that don't really fit anywhere. I would mention, I'm going to mention real quick, on the outside of your leg, you have your IT band or iliotibial tract. So there's no muscular component to the IT band, but muscles attach there. So last week we talked about how the glute max attaches there. And the other muscle that attaches there is called the tensor fascia lata or TFL. And that is a hip flexor and abductor, but its effect is pretty minimal. We think of other hip flexors like the iliopsoas complex, the rectus femoris. Those are the main workhorses for hip flexion. This one just kind of helps. Same with abduction of the hip. We usually think about glute medius, glute minimus. It's just kind of a helper. It's there. And speaking of a helper, we have the sartorius as well. And this is what we call the tailor sit muscle because it puts you in that tailor sit position. It runs from your ASIS down below your knee, and it is responsible for hip flexion, abduction, and external rotation. So if you do a figure four type stretch, that's what the sartorius is doing. It also flexes the knee as well. So it does a lot all over the place. It might even tilt the pelvis anteriorly now that I think about it due to its attachment on the ASIS. It's a very long, thin, skinny kind of muscle. And in general, it doesn't really contribute much to any of these movements. It's not a major workhorse for any of these, but it kind of, it's there and it helps out with all of them. I've never seen anyone in bodybuilding or anything like that that has a extremely toned and defined sartorius muscle. But if you do, please send me a picture because I would love to see that. So we've talked about all of the upper leg above the knee for the most part. Now we're going to go below the knee. And I'm going to abbreviate this a little bit because there are a ton of muscles below the knee. Things like the flexor hallucis longus and the flexor digitorum longus, extensor digitorum longus, all that sort of thing. So because of those muscles not really contributing to the ankle, they act at the foot. So things like flexor digitorum longus would be responsible for pulling your four lateral toes, so everything but your big toe, down into flexion. That's not something we typically think of when we think of exercise. And although these muscles are important, especially for the feet and injury prevention, it's not something we typically think of in the gym. So I'm going to save these muscles for now, and I'll come back to them in a podcast episode later on all about the feet. That's one that I'm going to see if I can get a guest on to go into detail about. But mainly, when we think of the ankle, we think of the calves and we think of the tibialis anterior. So the calves, again, there's a lot of small muscles that are in here that I'm not going to go into detail on. Uh, One I didn't mention, the plantaris. Again, most people, that's not really going to be anything significant. The three significant ones we're looking at for the calves are the gastroc or gastrocnemius, the soleus, and the tibialis posterior. 
So again, these are the three major workhorses for the calves. So they are responsible for plantar flexion or pushing the gas pedal, putting your foot down. So the gastroc actually crosses the knee joint. So because of that, it helps with knee flexion as well. So if you want to really train the gastroc, uh, you're going to do it with straight legs. Another note on the gastroc, it has two heads to it, and you can kind of palpate these. Each one is, one is more medial towards the middle, and one is more lateral towards the side, and you should feel kind of a ridge in between them. So deep to the gastroc is the soleus, and deep to that is the tibialis posterior. So the soleus and the tib posterior do not cross the knee joint. So as a result, if you want to work them more effectively or isolate them, you're going to do so with bent knees. So that brings in the concept of insufficiency. So when you bend your knees, you shorten your gastroc because you flexed your knees. And because of that, your gastroc will not contribute to as much ankle movement or motion. So you're isolating the, the soleus and the tib posterior when you do something like a seated calf raise. The three of these muscles and basically the calves in general, unless they act in the foot, they're all going to blend into the Achilles tendon and form that. So as we're going to talk about, again, Achilles tendon, key for injury prevention, but there's also a certain way you'd want to load these muscles in order to train them effectively. And last but not least, the tibialis anterior. This is the major muscle in the anterior compartment or front of your lower leg. So this is the main muscle for dorsiflexion or pulling the foot up towards the body. So any kind of closed kinetic chain exercise, like a squat, for example, it's crucial to have good dorsiflexion strength and mobility to get those knees towards the toes or over the toes in some exercises. And these are often neglected, undertrained, not really taken care of. People have tight calves most of the time, and as a result, their dorsiflexion range of motion is limited. So again, big thing here, and I'm excited to go into the training aspect of this. So now that we've reviewed the anatomy of the legs, let's talk about the best exercises for your legs. So the biggest key to leg training, just like glute training and pretty much all muscles, is to lift heavy and add in progressive overload. So either increasing sets or reps to a certain point, increasing the weight, increasing tension, that sort of thing. So as far as my top leg exercises, I'm going to start with the king of the lower body movements, the squat. And the reason I'm bringing this up is for the variations. So we discussed all the glute training and glute benefits to the squat last week, but they're also great for building the quads and maintaining mobility in the hips, knees, and ankles. So you're getting a deep hip flexion and anterior pelvic tilt with knee flexion and ankle dorsiflexion when you squat. So because of that, you're working through a good mobility, range of motion there, and strengthening everything because you can really load the squat heavily. Again, I said variations. 
So there's a lot of different variations to the squat. The back squat is going to be more hip dominant. So you're going to see more glute training benefits with that. The front squat or front squat variations, whether it be a barbell or a goblet squat, a zercher squat, whatever, because of the weight being situated in the front of your body instead of behind your body, it creates a longer moment arm, so going into physics here, for your knee. And because of that, your quads will work harder during a front-loaded squat than a back-loaded squat. So if you really want to target the legs more and train the quads, you're going to use a front-loaded squat instead of a back-loaded squat. Now, again, you should still do all the different squat variations. You shouldn't just stick with one thing all the time 24-7. Variety is key and variety is good. But if you're focusing on one thing, then maybe you're going to focus on one variation more than others. Additionally, you can vary your stance. So some people do very narrow stance or cannonball stance squats, and that's going to isolate the quads more effectively. Or you can go into a sumo squat or a wide stance squat, and this puts more on the hip. And it's kind of a challenging exercise for a lot of people, but I've really liked this variation lately over the past few weeks because it's very effective at targeting the adductors. So I've referenced an article here in the show notes that actually reviews how the adductors contribute to injuries and how they can be used for injury prevention. And essentially, most people have tightness in their adductors and they have weakness in their adductors, which is a real bad combination. So let's think about the adductors. If you do a side lunge or a Cossack squat, Essentially, this is going to be lengthening and strengthening the adductors at the same time. And some people can get really low and do this with really good weight. Most of us, however, cannot. So making sure you address these other muscles is crucial for everyone because this movement pattern, being able to sit down and stand up, being able to get low and then stand back up, it's crucial for everyone, every sport, every walk of life everyone. Additionally, the other thing I love about the squat is the connection between the lower body and the upper body or the serapes. So in the lower body, obviously we're working our quads, our glutes, our calves, all that sort of stuff with the squat. But think, we also need to grip the bar so our forearms are working. We're pulling the bar down into our back actively and bracing our core to hold our spine straight. So all these other muscles are synergistically acting at the same time. So we're building tension throughout the entire body. And that's one of the things I love about the squat is if done correctly, it's really a full body exercise and not just a lower body exercise. And speaking of full body exercises, the next exercise I want to talk about is the deadlift. And again, deadlift variations. So hex bar, RDL, single leg, there's tons of different varieties to the deadlift. So we'll start with the hex bar. This is more of a squat movement pattern, so you might see a little more quadricep activation than a traditional straight bar deadlift. I like this one too because you can typically lift 50 to 80 pounds more than you would with a straight bar. So as far as the overload concept goes, you can really overload a hex bar deadlift or a trap bar deadlift, which is great. 
with that, we also see this being huge for athletes. Athletics, if you want to do a weighted jump squat and you don't want a barbell resting on your shoulders, doing so with a hex bar is a great and safe option. It's a great way to protect your lower back while still lifting heavy. And there's tons of research showing that the hex bar deadlift has huge carryover to athletic performance in different events like sprint speed. Uh, I believe there's even something in the news years ago when Johnny Manziel, I don't know if any of my listeners still remember who Johnny Football was, um, but back in the day, he was you know top draft pick, slated to be this amazing NFL quarterback, and well, we all know what happened because we don't really hear his name anymore, but essentially, he built his 40-yard dash speed with the hex bar deadlift. There was a news article about it years ago. I'll see if I can find it and link to it in the show notes. But he credited that exercise with improving his sprint speed and performance. But again, there's other variations. You could do RDLs, so bent knee, and that's going to focus on the hamstrings a little more. You could do a single leg RDL or single leg deadlift, and then you're going to get more of a balance and unilateral training focus. Again, with these, we're going after the hamstrings mostly. So, squat, deadlift. What else? How about some lunges? So, again, these three exercises, we talked about them all last week with the glutes, but now we're going over them for the legs. So, with the lunge, we see that you can get real deep and good range of motion from that. Pretty much everyone can lunge. Even people I see who have really tight muscles or poor squat mobility, for example, they can still lunge pretty well. And this is good. So lunges, you're getting that deep knee flexion. You're really bending the knee and you're getting a good dorsiflexion motion too, where the knee is going to the toes or over the toes in some spots. So because of that, we're really working the quads. We're really working the calves and uh, tib anterior. We're working the glutes. And again, this is a pretty simple thing. And there's plenty of variations to do here. You could do walking lunges, forward lunges, reverse lunges, side lunges. You can do a combo of all of them. You can do front foot elevated. You could do rear foot elevated, so a split squat. Lots of variety, great exercise. My favorite variation is banded split squats or walking lunges. Something about walking lunges is phenomenal. And if you think that these are not challenging, set a timer for two minutes and do walking lunges for those full two minutes. Consistent walking lunges. No wait, just two minutes nonstop walking lunges. I'm telling you, your legs are going to be burning. So I mentioned before too that the hamstrings are key in preventing injuries at the knee, especially the ACL. So my favorite way and one of the best ways to build and strengthen the hamstrings is the Nordic hamstring curl. This is a simple exercise. It's body weight. You might need a band to actually help you do this exercise. You can do it with two legs or one leg if you're really good. Uh, I'm not that good personally, but two legs is good enough. You can build a lot of tension in your hamstrings with this. So... You can either do eccentric or you can do slow down and pause and then come back up. 
lot of variety here. You can explode up, but again, challenging body weight exercise, great for building the hamstring. And one of the articles I referenced, I think it was Timmins, um, but essentially the stronger your hamstrings are, the lower your risk of knee injury. So I think it was every 10 Newton increase in eccentric hamstring force or force generation that will reduce your risk of knee injury by 9.6, 9.7, something like that percent. So if you can boost your uh, hamstring strength by 20 to 30 newtons, which again, that's a unit of force. So going back to physics here, you're going to significantly reduce your risk of knee injury, which is great. And again, important for athletes, important for weekend warriors, important for everyone because injuries are not fun. So highly recommend giving this exercise a try. And again, you can do partial range of motion, eccentric, whatever, lots of variety. So we've talked about the upper leg extensively. Now, again, we have to talk about the lower legs too. So how are we going to do that? So for the tibialis anterior, nothing beats a simple band dorsiflexion for the tib anterior. This is simple. You can do it every day, four or five times a week. And you can use heavier resistance bands to really load it. Do a few sets for 8 to 10 reps, and you'll see some incredible results. And the goal with the tib anterior is to build a full range of motion in your squats and your lunges. Once you're hitting full range of motion, high weight, high load squats and lunges, that, that does a lot for you. Because let's think about it. Again, squats. You need that dorsiflexion. You need that knee to toe, or in some cases, some people can do over toe safely squat for full range of motion, which is a good thing. But to do that, think of the force that your tib anterior has to exert to pull your leg over your toes like that. Same with the lunges. You have a lot of force there. So if you can build up to full range of motion squats and lunges and exercises similar to that with high weight, then eventually you'll get to the point where you can probably phase out of doing banded dorsiflexion. However, most people don't train their tib anterior at all. And with that, you know, it gets weak. So doing something to strengthen it until you hit that point is probably a good thing. And even at that point, you might benefit from doing more of it. Additionally, we've talked about the anterior compartment now. So now we're going to look at the posterior compartment. So the calves. So as I mentioned before, soleus and tib posterior do not cross the knee. So the seated calf raise is going to be the king here. As far as the gastroc, my favorite way to train the gastroc and I say favorite loosely because I don't like doing it, but it is very effective, is a single leg standing calf raise with weight. I usually use a dumbbell or a kettlebell. So since you're single leg, you also have to balance yourself. So your calves are really working overtime with this, and now you're loading that too. So that's a great way to build that gastroc, and your knee is extended, so because it's not flexed, your gastroc is contributing. 
with both, no matter what calf exercises you like or use or go with, tension is the key. So performing the exercise with a pause at the top or focusing on an eccentric is the key to building your calves. Now, one last thing on calves, make sure you stretch them too. As I said, a lot of people have tightness in their calves and clearly that's going to limit your ability to strengthen and stretch or increase your mobility at the ankle with dorsiflexion. So tight calves will limit the tibia anterior and if you can't get a full range of motion with dorsiflexion, then you're not going to build as much strength. So we've reviewed anatomy of the legs, the best exercises for your legs. Now, how do we program these? How do we put them all together? We're gonna to start with compounds. Like usual, heavy compound lifts first, and then if we need to isolate, we'll get into that later. So start with those functional movement patterns. Start with your squats, your deadlifts, your lunges, that sort of stuff, and then adding your accessories later. So whether that's Nordic hamstring curls or the calf raises or some of the exercises I didn't mention, which I'm going to go over in a second. Additionally, you should train these functional movement patterns daily. So make sure you do a few body weight squats, some hip hinging, some lunging every day. I'm not talking about going crazy here, but to do 10 to 15 body weight squats, that's not going to cause overtraining. It's not going to cause a soreness you've never felt before if you're someone who works out regularly. So to do 10 body weight squats and maintain the movement pattern, maintain mobility, that sort of thing is a good thing, really greasing the groove, so to speak. And additionally, another thing I like to consider is watching the total volume. So I should not be unable to walk after I finish legs. So factor in other things you do like cardio. Are you a runner? Are you a cyclist? And general conditioning. You know, if you're an athlete, if you're a basketball player, you might be doing a lot of jumping and landing and cutting and all these other things that put a lot of strain and stress on your leg muscles already. So make sure you're factoring that in effectively. I like to go by how I feel. So I'll rate myself daily in a journal on a 0 to 10 scale. So kind of like RPE, rating of perceived exertion thing here. So if I'm going to do my weights, I'll rate how I feel afterwards. So maybe I did a great leg workout, but my exertion was only a 5 out of 10. Now maybe I did a crappy leg workout, but I played an hour of basketball or an hour of soccer beforehand, and my perceived, exer perceived exertion was an 8 or a 9 out of 10. That tells me that next time I really need to back off a little bit in my leg training or in my sport uh, for my training because I want lower levels of exertion with more results and better workouts. That's ideal. Exert yourself as little as you can while get the best results and training and workouts as you can. So that's kind of the ideal formula. Now I said there's other exercises that I didn't mention that a lot of people do. So I didn't mention machine exercises like hack squats, like leg press, like leg extension, leg curl, that sort of thing. The only one I really mentioned was the seated calf raise. So as far as training goes, I try and use 
compounds with barbells and dumbbells and free weights as much as I can. These are more functional. They have more carryover to daily life and they also increase your muscle activation because you have to stabilize the weight. There's nothing wrong with using machines because, again, they allow you to overload muscles more because you don't have to stabilize. You have a fixed movement pattern and you're just pushing through it. However, I would not make your workout exclusively machines. They are a great way to add in accessory work or little things here and there. And because of that, if you need to use them or want to use them for variety or to target certain things that you're struggling with, then please do because you can get good results with machines. But do not make them the focus of your workouts. And that goes for everything. Not just the legs, but the upper body too, your chest, your back, your arms, everything. Uh, And with that, if you're an athlete, if you are healthy, perfectly fine, totally balanced, which if you're an athlete, that pretty much never happens, unfortunately. But if you are, then one, great. But two, you really want to focus on the movement patterns. So what are you doing in your sport? And how can you um, replicate those movement patterns in the gym? How can you load them more effectively and bulletproof your body to stay healthy? And say you do have an imbalance. Maybe you have an imbalance with your quads. Maybe your patellar tracking is off. Then maybe doing something like some leg extensions might be a good thing. Maybe you haven't gotten to the point where you can do a Nordic hamstring curl yet, but you want to build your hamstrings then doing different leg curl variations on machines with weight might be a great idea to strengthen those hamstrings. One thing I do want to mention while I'm talking about machines, there's some that I don't like and don't do. I personally don't do the leg extension machine, again, unless there's an imbalance. So maybe my vastus medialis is stronger than my lateralis or vice versa then I'll use that machine to kind of correct and fix that. Great. I'm also not a big fan of the standing leg curl. I don't mind the seated one and I don't mind the uh, lying leg curl, but I don't really like those either. The standing one I don't like because you're standing, you're on your feet, you're load bearing, but you're only using your hamstrings. When, as we talked about, the glutes and hamstrings are designed to work together. And again, same with the seated and uh, supine. Is your hamstrings are working, but your glutes are not. However, where going back to the standing again here, you're load-bearing, you're standing, you're on your feet, and you're training your hamstrings to work independently. When again, we want them to work with the glutes. We want it all to be connected, working together. So that's one piece. And the other piece too is a lot of people tend to hyperextend their lower back when they're doing these and cause back pain. And back pain is not good. And again, these are just observations I've seen from training people in person, from being in different gyms outside, from being in the high school weight room with, you know, when I was playing football, soccer, that sort of thing. These are things I've observed over the years. That does not mean that no one should do leg curls or no one should do leg extensions. 
just make sure the situation is right and appropriate because, again, most of the time, there's a better exercise, a more effective exercise that gives you more bang for your buck. Again, things like a front squat, very great, effective way to build your quads, and it's going to give you other muscle activation at the same time. So with that, that's going to do it for today's episode all about the leg training. If you like this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also really love to hear from you, hear your thoughts, hear your questions and comments about what we're doing. So please reach out to us at Brawn Body, Brawn with a W, on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Byte, uh, this new video app that's kind of comparable to TikTok, all these different platforms. So please reach out to us and engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the Brawn Body Podcast. Have a great rest of your day.